Today is a continuation of the series on divine wisdom. We've been preaching for the last, well, this is the fourth week. Well, we've been making the case that divine wisdom is the counterpoint to the logos, that is, the word that became flesh. Wisdom is the feminine counterpart to the masculine word. And if God chose to dwell among us in that word through Jesus Christ, God has also chosen to dwell among us through this divine presence known as wisdom. We fleshed this out as saying that this wisdom is the mystery of the ultimate truth of who God is, of God. What we say when we say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom that it is fleshed out in our own humility as we stand or kneel underneath that divine mystery, and that true wisdom leads us to self-awareness of our own sinful indebtedness. That's today's sermon. This awareness should help us, or at least give us some resistance to being critical and judging others, The more we are aware of this, the more we stand in need of God's forgiveness. And the more forgiveness that we experience, the more love we have to share. The love comes after the forgiveness. We do not ask God's forgiveness in order to be loved. We ask God's forgiveness after we discover how much we are loved. This morning's passage is a classic example of how Jesus deals with this with the religious people of his day, the Pharisees, they are called. In fact, many Jewish people I know say that Jesus probably was a Pharisee himself. Otherwise, he would not have gotten access to the synagogues where he preached. The text begins in the 36th verse of chapter 7. May God be our vision as we hear and see the truth in this word. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And the woman in the city, who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him, that she is a sinner." Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, teacher. He replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven, hence she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. If you were a Presbyterian, at least, and a few other denominations, we say in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Debt forgiveness has many sides to it. Somehow recently, while reading the newspaper on my computer, I ended up looking at this show called Last Week Tonight by John Oliver. The show tries to break down complicated stories uh, that usually are about unsavory business practices with mostly irreverent and mocking humor. This particular program I was watching uh, uncovered the practices of companies who buy medical debt and try to collect them through threat, even though the debt is uh, beyond the statute of limitations. So he had this bright idea. He decided to spend $60,000 of the producer's money and bought the names of 9,000 people in Texas who owed anywhere from $50,000 to $250,000 to some hospital or physician. They totaled $15 million. And after he had collected all these names and paid the fee, he took his finger and punched a red button and said, now all your debt is forgiven. After the program, near the end, he boasted that this is way bigger than anything Oprah had ever done by giving away cars. Next thing I knew, I was, you know how it works in the computer, I'm I'm in another show he's doing about churches that exploit people for monetary gain. Not all of them do, he said, but he was referring to the large televangelist mega churches, mostly, who promise to help you prosper if you send in seed money. In one expose, he shows a video of a televangelist selling his snake oil, I guess you would say, and he said, I have a feeling that those of you who have credit card debt, if you use your faith, if you use your faith to sow the seed of faith, if you use your faith to sow with a $1,000 gift on that credit card now, if you use your faith to sow, God's going to wipe out all your credit card debt altogether. Which led Oliver to mock giving $1,000 to your credit card, through your credit card, in order to wipe out your credit card debt is a little like eating five pounds of M&M peanuts from Costco, thinking that you will lose weight. 
Everyone, of course, howled. As funny as it was, I had an uneasy sense that John Oliver, in his mocking parody of tele-evangelist, was not only reaping monetary gain, but also borrowing off his own sense of self-righteousness to do so. Today I want to make the case that not only the tele-evangelist and John Oliver stand in need of debt forgiveness, moi, and you. Preachers mostly preach sermons that they need to hear themselves, by the way, in case you didn't already know that. And so just consider this as a sermon to me. Hopefully you might overhear something for yourself. As Jesus made it clear over and over, when we start adding up the debts of others, we better start paying attention to our own balance sheet. It was C.S. Lewis who said, No part of Jesus' teaching was clearer, and there are no exceptions to it. He doesn't say that we are to forgive other people's debts or sins, providing they are not too bad or providing there are good reasons for them. He says we are to forgive them all, however spiteful, however mean, however often they are repeated, just as the Lord forgives us. When we do not or cannot for some reason, it is because we have not yet experienced the amount of debt that God has forgiven us. Turns out that Jesus liked the metaphor of debts because they refer refer to an obligation and encumbrance we owe and are obliged to return. We all know about those financial ones, but we are less aware of those heart ones, those spiritual ones. These are the debts Jesus could track precisely uh, like a CPA. Maybe this is why Presbyterians like to use the translation in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. We're Scots in our heritage, and we usually keep good score of things, especially our money. Deep in our souls, we know there is a balance sheet of rights and wrongs that we determine our own sense of worth by, as well as the sense of others' worth. Those who owe us, we keep score of, as well as those we owe, socially or financially or legally or spiritually. And the way of that world is simply the way of keeping order. And I'm not trying to undermine it. Without that order, our world would go into chaos, anarchy. It's the way we keep score. It's a quid pro quo understanding. Which is why this morning's passage is so um, indicting, revolutionary, subversive. Who cannot understand the Pharisee's astonishment at his own dinner party He is dumbfounded and ashamed as Jesus, seemingly out of his good soft-heartedness, forgives the debt of the sinful woman and then accepts her love offering at his table. In the first place, it broke all convention. Women are not supposed to be at the table with men. 
She kneels inappropriately at his feet to wash them with her tears and then uncovers her hair, again an act against the Torah, and begins to dry them with that. Then she breaks out a jar of ointment, perfume, that she begins to bathe his feet with, anointing them with this overpowering smell of love that covers the whole room. Love, it seems, is like that. She was a woman of ill repute, we assume, a woman with a bad reputation, obviously. And this insinuation of intimacy and breaking of the purity laws were to the Pharisee more unbelievable than planting seed money to forgive our credit cards. This Pharisee was in his own way right. If Jesus was indeed a prophet, he would know who she is. I can't help but imagine what it must have been like when Jesus encountered her the first time to forgive her. Was it when she was standing on a corner and he walked by and saw her and called her to himself, or did she see him and come to him like the woman who grabbed the the bottom of his cloak? Did he reach out and touch her then, knowing that that was against the purity laws, and did he, in that amazing touch of Jesus, look her in the eyes and say to her, your sins are forgiven, that you are a child of God, that no matter what you have done, God loves you and forgives you and accepts you. I can't imagine how incredibly powerful that moment must have been for her when Jesus did whatever it was he did to cause her to break into this dinner party in a completely inappropriate way and broadcast this incredible love that she experienced regardless of the consequences. And it leaves me wondering, whatever it was, is it still available for us? As the Pharisee just sat there watching all this, Jesus didn't need to read his heart. He could see it on his face. He was judging every single act of her. And Jesus, knowing a teaching moment when he saw one, told a parable about a creditor who had two debtors, one owed 250 denarii, the other 50. When the creditor forgave the debt, Which one, he asked, loved him more? It's not a hard question. The Pharisee got it. I suppose the one who owed the most debt, he said. Then turning to the woman, he compared her gifts of hospitality, washing his his feet, receiving him with a holy kiss, uh, to Simon, the Pharisee's lack of hospitality. And Jesus said, that this sinful woman, as you call her, was treating me like you should have. Now who is truly indebted? So here was this righteous religious Pharisee 
Jesus saying to him, take the two-by-four out of your own eyes before you worry about the matchstick in your neighbor's. Or Simon or Steve, if you knew your debts were as great as hers, and if you knew of the incredible love and forgiveness of God I have come to announce, you would be set free from your judgmental shell of righteousness that you spend so much time in your life hiding behind and start living and loving again as a completely new creation, like her. The rest of the Pharisees sitting around the table are still missing the point, of course, and they complain, who is he to forgive sins? A typical way to undermine someone's credibility. Instead of accepting the gift they bring, you question their credentials. They knew that only God could forgive sins, and that could only happen if those sins were mediated through a priest, either through a guilt or a sin offering by the killing of an animal. Yet Jesus seems to be doing this for nothing. No price is being paid to cancel the debt. It's the same as going to a priest asking forgiveness and the priest saying, okay, say a hundred Hail Marys as penance and then you will be forgiven. Or give 10% of your income to the church. And whatever the case may be, Jesus is clear that the woman had done nothing yet to receive the forgiveness. It was freely given by God. Then she responded with her love offering. It turns out, by the way, this forgiveness is not for nothing. It cost Jesus his life. This is, in, this is, I think, is for any reason I can figure as much as for any reason why they crucified him. He turned the table on the whole game of keeping score and managing debt. And it undermined all the religious power. God, he says, forgives us. And he gives his life as a down payment of that forgiveness that our debts are forgiven. Not to provide God a substitute because we can't pay that much. But to provide us a promise that the cost has been paid. Grace, it turns out, is the most subversive and radical thing there is. This, I think, is wisdom. A saint is simply someone who knows him or herself a sinner, saints will say, as if the light of God's love on the cross reveals and uncovers the darkness in our hearts. Not that we are all dark. No, we're made in the image of God. We're created in God's image. We are full of light, but that we have Tumors of darkness that only grow when we feed them with criticism and judgment instead of treating them with God's love and forgiveness. Take the case of Brock Turner's conviction last week for assaulting. It was more than an assault. 
a student at Stanford. There's been a universal outcry, and rightfully so, over the lenient sentence that he received. 90 days in jail is what he'll serve, compared to 14 possible years in prison. We all know that if Mr. Turner had been of a different color or social class, he would have gotten the book thrown at him. But what about those people who have threatened the judge as well as anyone else who has shown the least bit of support for Mr. Turner in his defense? Their violent threats makes the point Jesus makes that those who feel justified in their righteous indignation and their judgments are more dangerous because they are blind to their own sinful indebtedness. Be thou my vision indeed. Friends, it does not have to be this way. Like the woman who loved much, when we come to the cross and see the incredible love of God poured out for us, when we stand under that cross and discover by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has paid us the greatest of all down payments that we are forgiven. That much love can then pour out, like the perfume at this party embracing all who are there, sometimes in intimate and vulnerable ways that seem completely and embarrassingly inappropriate even to others, but not to Jesus. So here's the wisdom proverb for today. The one who has been forgiven much loves much. It is a wise rule of thumb when it comes to keeping score. Let us stand and say what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Friends, we do not have an altar call. We have an offertory in which we freely make our love offering to God for the debts that he has canceled.